Was the showdown on Capitol Hill over the U.S. fiscal crisis the high-stakes drama that Americans were led to believe it was? Was this really about preserving progressive health care reforms from the wrath of neoconservative Republicans? What else was contained in the bill signed on to last week by the House and Senate? How did this situation come about, and how may it ultimately be overcome? What is at stake for the working class in America? We'll hear viewpoints from broadcast journalist Stephen Lendman and from York University political science professor David McNally in the next hour. On today's program, after the U.S. default showdown, more bad news. Bringing you the analysis beyond the headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of October 18, 2013. I am your host, Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. We seek to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major stories shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. Our show is also broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.org. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. While Wall Street exerts a decisive influence on policy and legislation pertaining to the government shutdown, these same major financial institutions also control the movement of currency markets, commodity, and stock markets through large-scale operations in derivative trade. Most of the key actors in the U.S. Congress and the Senate involved in the shutdown debate are controlled by powerful corporate lobby groups acting directly or indirectly on behalf of Wall Street. Major interests on Wall Street are not only in a position to influence the results of the congressional process, they also have inside information or prior knowledge of the chronology and outcome of the government shutdown impasse. They are slated to make billions of dollars in windfall profits in speculative activities which are secure, assuming that they are in a position to exert their influence on relevant policy outcomes. It should be noted, however, that there are important divisions both within the U.S. Congress as well as within the financial establishment. That's from The Speculative Endgame, The Government Shutdown and Debt Default, a multi-billion bonanza for Wall Street, by Professor Michelle Chosodovsky, posted October 16th. Lawyers from the National Lawyers Guild, U.S., International Association of Democratic Lawyers, European Center for Constitutional and Human Rights, Germany, Brussels Tribunal, Belgium, International Initiative to Prosecute U.S. Genocide in Iraq, from Iraq, Egypt, and Spain, Lawyers Against the War, from Canada, and Rights International Spain, from Spain, are urging Canada to either bar Dick Cheney from Canada as a person credibly accused of torture, or to arrest and prosecute him on arrival as required by the Convention Against Torture. 
a letter from Lawyers Against the War sent to Canada's Prime Minister, Attorney General, and Ministers of Foreign Affairs and Immigration has been gravely ignored. Torture and war crime suspect Dick Cheney is scheduled as a keynote speaker at the October 31st luncheon of the Toronto Global Forum, hosted by the International Forum of the Americas. Should Cheney be allowed to freely enter Canada despite the illegalities involved, civil society groups are planning a rally beginning at 11 a.m. on Halloween, October 31st, outside the Metro Toronto Convention Centre. That's from the article, Canada Must Arrest and Prosecute Dick Cheney If He Enters Canada, Human Rights Lawyers Advisory. Hugh Harper government ignores torture opponents' call to ban Dick Cheney from Canada or prosecute him. Protest planned on Halloween at Metro Toronto Convention Centre posted October 16th by Lawyers Against the War. The International Monetary Fund, IMF, quietly dropped a bomb in its October Fiscal Monitor report. Titled, Taxing Times, the report paints a dire picture for advanced economies with a high debts that fail to aggressively mobilize domestic revenue. It goes on to build a case for drastic measures and recommends a series of escalating income and consumption tax increases culminating in the direct confiscation of assets. First, IMF economists know there are not enough rich people to fund today's governments even if 100% of the assets of the 1% were expropriated. That means that all households with positive net wealth, everyone with retirement savings or home equity, would have their assets plundered under the IMF's formulation. That is from the International Monetary Fund lays the groundwork for global wealth confiscation by Global Research News posted October 17th. Recall that in the crisis darkest hours, the Can government had to consider evacuating metropolitan Tokyo's over 13 million population, that's 10% of Japan, should the situation at Daiichi spiral out further out of control. This impossible challenge was avoided because several critical factors worked in consort. Many of them were enumerated by Funabashi Yoiki, chair of the Independent Investigation Commission on the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear accident. The tsunami hit on a weekday, which meant there was ten times more workers on site than on a weekend. The wind blew out to sea until March 15th, which helped the venting process and limited the amount of people exposed to radiation. This is not so, so fortunate for American sailors, however. Rain did not fall, which limited the amount of radiation spread. The explosion at number three reactor actually sent water into the storage pool in the number four reactor. And, more controversially, Kan Naoto was prime minister at the time because he understood what the government had to do at the most vital time of the crisis and what decision had to be made at that time. But, as Funabashi cogently warns, luck eventually runs out. And the longer TEPCO remains in charge of the cleanup and decommissioning process, the worse Japan's odds become. That's from the article, The Lid Comes Off Fukushima Daiichi. Japan's Ground Zero, The Devastating Consequences of Government Inaction by Christopher Hobson and Andrew Dewitt, posted October 15th, originally appearing in the Asia-Pacific Journal, Volume 11, Issue 35, Number 1, on September 2nd, 2013. 
These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu. On Wednesday, the democratically controlled Senate voted 81 to 18 to accept a deal that would finance government operations until January 15th and lift the so-called debt ceiling until February 7th. The bill was passed in the U.S. House of Representatives by a vote of 285 to 144. H.R. 2775, the Continuing Appropriations Act 2014, maintains $986.3 billion for five appropriation bills. It includes other unreported provisions. To help us deconstruct the fiscal histrionics of the past week, we're joined by award-winning broadcast journalist Stephen Lendman. He's the author of How Wall Street Fleeces America, Privatized Banking, Government Collusion, and Class War. He has written extensively on the U.S. debt crisis and the U.S. shutdown. He joins us from Chicago. Thank you for joining us, Stephen Lenman. Michael, it's a pleasure to be on with you. Now, um, I think people who have been uh, utilizing the mainstream media, they might uh, be under the impression of the well, they have the, the certain narrative has come out. Uh, basically, uh, Barack Obama and the Democrats stared down those Republicans, and as a result, uh, they managed to preserve Obamacare and and get this fiscal uh, situation dealt with at least for a few more months. And so, uh, basically, the the Democrats are are presented as having uh, won a, a bit of you know, or the Republicans have blinked in in the face of this whole. Um, fiasco and so crisis was averted for the time being now how accurate is that depiction in your view I think the real crisis Michael is the effect on ordinary people in America that's the real crisis it's the crisis that hasn't been addressed the real story about what went on I mean literally we had we had the 16 days of theatrics uh, Republicans and Democrats for many months have literally been in lockstep uh, on policies like the sequester, uh, $1.2 trillion, I believe, uh, whacked out of uh, discretionary spending, meaning domestic social programs mainly. And, uh, and uh, Obama, from day one in office, I remember writing an article, uh, the Washington Post interviewed him very early in his administration, first term, and he made a very strong point about uh, the need to attack Medicare and make very severe cuts. And, of course, Republicans never wanted Medicare enacted in the first place or Social Security back in the 1930s. And basically, Republicans and Democrats came together very early in Obama's tenure that they were going to whack Medicare, uh, take uh, literally a wage war on Social America, and this has been going on since January 2009. So, I mean, this just continued in, into this budget situation, government shutdown. Again, it was mostly theatrics, Michael. I think the basics were agreed on between both parties long ago. And it's just a matter of how they'll implement this stuff. I think the disagreement is mainly on details and timing, but certainly not on the major policy, which I simply call destroying social America, especially the big items that uh, so many millions of Americans rely on, Medicare, Social Security, 
Medicaid. Medicaid is uh, is uh, a government benefit. Uh, Medicare and Social Security are falsely called entitlements. They are not entitlements. They are contractual government obligations. They're no different than buying an insurance policy. And when payroll deductions come out of workers' uh, uh, paychecks, every single one of them, uh, this is no different than paying an insurance company premiums for life insurance, health insurance, car insurance. It's the exact same thing. But you never hear the major media explain that, Michael, or exactly what was going on with this shutdown business, with the, uh, the combination of the budget battle and the debt ceiling, and, and the devastating effect it's having on ordinary Americans. And I don't mean over the 16 days. I mean what will happen in the aftermath of what both parties have agreed to. Hmm. Well, uh, just to, 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 to further on to, to Obamacare, because I, I think a lot of our, our Canadian listeners, uh, they when they hear the rhetoric of people like Senator Cruz, they, they I, I think, to put it politely, are, are a little bit confused in the sense that in Canada we do have a, a, a health care system that, uh, while not perfect, it's a single-payer system. And uh, they're inclined to see the Obamacare model as a, an attempt to try to make the uh, healthcare system reach the more uh, more Americans, you know, people who are maybe not so well off. Uh, could you maybe help help people understand uh, how Ob- Obamacare is uh, not doing the things that it's billed to do? Because they don't oh, see it as an assault, not. right? It, it, it's a disgraceful. It's a disgraceful piece of legislation. Number one, it is not universal. Something on the order of 30 million Americans will be left out, Michael. Again, you never hear the major media explain that. And everybody must have health insurance. Who ever heard of a law that says? I mean, imagine a law saying everybody has to go out and buy an automobile, <laughs> or everybody has to go out and buy a home. Well, everybody has to buy health insurance. Uh, if you're too poor to buy it, you get government help, depending on your income. If you're $1 above certain minimums, you lose the subsidies. Uh, but, but imagine a law mandating that you have to have health insurance coverage. So if you're young, if, you, if your income is very modest, if you can't afford very much, how on earth should, or why on earth should the government force you to do this? Well, you are forced to do it. It's a handout to the insurance companies. But the entire bill from, from A to Z was a boon to big insurers. I guess to any health insurer, but especially the big ones, to the drug companies, to the big hospital chains, and one of the and one of the uh, one of the big uh, HMOs, uh, WellPoint Health, was the lead architect of this act. So the industry writes these laws, Michael. <laughs> they would never get passed if the industries affected uh, did not sign off on them, and they sign off on them by having their lobbyists or lawyers or whatever write these laws. So the idea that the Republicans are against what the, what the industry wants is absolutely ludicrous. The, the, the so-called uh, uh, McConnell and Ted Cruz and the others uh, wanting uh, uh, no funding for Obamacare, that was a ruse, Michael. They knew, they knew that there would be no change to Obamacare, and that wasn't the issue behind what they did. <laughs> it was used that way, but they knew that they, wouldn't, they, knew they wouldn't get one 
one one thing whacked out of Obamacare from what they did, and frankly, they didn't care, and I don't think they care going forward. But they may resurrect it again. Who knows? What they really wanted to do was was getting into agreement with Obama on exactly what they will do going forward on whacking the big social programs, starting with Social Security and Medicare. Continuing on with what you referred to in your uh, recent article as a grand theft America, could you help uh, tell us about some of the highlights or, or lowlights of the recent uh, legislation that was passed, the HR 2775, uh, some of the aspects of it that uh, maybe people should know about but don't understand very well? On the one hand, Michael, I was surprised. To, I, I wanted, I, if I can... Instead of just saying legislation passed in Congress, sometimes I would do that, but I would refer, prefer to name the, the law that was that passed. This one was confusing, and I discovered that there were five versions, <laughs> five versions of this law that passed, and, 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 I, and it wasn't mentioned on most websites. Uh, I would see one name on one website, another name on another website. It was very, very confusing. Uh, one was, um, oh dear, no well, subsidies the without the no subsidies without verification act. Yeah. <laughs> the final version was called Continu Continuing Appropriations Act 2014. It, it has a lot more in it than just uh, nearly nearly a trillion dollars uh, kicking the can down the road to early 2014. It's got the, the most outrageous uh, provision in it. Section 126, 126 is the provision. It, it, it allocates nearly $3 billion to the state of Kentucky, Michael, for an ongoing dam project and what's associated with it. And it affects the, the state of Tennessee, so the senators and congressmen in Tennessee support it, just like the ones in Kentucky support it. Well, this is, this, critics call this uh, the McConnell kickback. Hmm. <laughs> When McConnell, the minority leader, and Harry Reid, the Democrat leader in the Senate, got together and decided on how this thing will work, well, I think they decided more than when it was reported they decided. But anyway, they're the ones that that, that, that really uh, get together and decide policy and then see if they can get the, their uh, their rank and file in the in the Senate to go along with it. Usually they can get enough of them to go along, and uh, and, uh, and they did, and, the, and it passed in the Senate, and the same thing in the House. But, but all of these bills that passed usually have a lot more in them than the headlines that uh, get reported in the media. And this one had uh, well over 100 sections in it. There was $174,000 given to the widow of Senator Laudenberg, uh, a gratuity given to her. Well, that alone was outrageous, especially the fact that Laudenberg, who died, oh, a year or two ago, I, I don't, I, I'm not certain of the date, but when he died, he was a he was a multi billionaire, a multi billionaire, not a multi millionaire, but a multi billionaire. <laughs> so his wife certainly doesn't need a hundred an extra hundred seventy four thousand dollars. But nonetheless, this is in this bill, and there is other funding that that goes for other government initiatives. You know, stuff that uh, that congressmen and senators want in the local districts or, or states. And this is the way a legislation gets put together, but it's never reported that way. And the only people coming out on the short end, Michael, are ordinary Americans who need help from the government, but instead of getting help, they're getting hammered. Hmm. Now, uh, I noticed from one of your past posts, you mentioned Detroit and uh, the, the situation that they've 
faced. Um, and uh, I guess by my own paraphrase, it's sort of the uh, – well, the, the name of the article was Detroit Mirrors America's Decline, as if uh, the, the privatization of, of the city has become kind of a, a canary in the coal mine for what's happening to the whole uh, nation. Did you, can you think you could explain that a little bit? Oh, I think Detroit is a poster child for what's going on in America now, Michael. I think back in the 1980s, it was Youngstown, Ohio, among other places. And, uh, and, and, and an exception to the rule, I think, was Pittsburgh, where I worked in Pittsburgh uh, early in my working life in the early 1960s for, for Jones and Lachlan Steel. And uh, as a matter of fact, uh, during that time, Alan Greenspan <laughs> was, was your economic advisor. And, uh, and, and the section I worked in was right off the boardroom. And uh, when, during the monthly board, when the, they had a monthly board meeting, uh, the board members would, would traipse in right to our area and go right into the boardroom in, in the back. And Alan Greenspan would traipse in uh, to be uh, in the meeting to, I guess, brief them or whatever he did for them. Uh, I don't think it was very much because he was very unsuccessful <laughs> in the private sector. So I think he was a natural candidate to become Fed chairman. <laughs> but that's another story. But uh, but back then it, it was uh, it was uh, it was hollowing out uh, uh, industrial cities like Youngstown. A uh, steel in steel industry was very heavily hit. But in the early 1960s, Pittsburgh was very vibrant. It it reinvented itself and it came back very strong. But other cities haven't done that. And certainly Detroit is the poster child overall for what used to be the heartland of industrial America. If you go back to the to, to the post-war period, I guess the, the war period, even the pre-war period in the Second World War and the post-war period in the 50s, the 60s, and the, the 70s. But then it started downhill, and it literally has become a shell of its former self with a population dropped sharply, unemployment is off the charts. I don't think the official numbers have any meaning at all. I think unemployment in Detroit way exceeds 50%. And there are neighborhoods that, that look like, a, like, like, like they were war zones where, where, where housing and other things are just absolutely in shambles. And a poverty extreme, unemployment extreme, extreme human deprivation. And now it's under a trustee for, for, a, for a private uh, a lawyer to come in representing uh, the, the strip miners of Detroit to, to, literally, to literally strip mine everything of worth out of Detroit and sell it to the private sector at uh, fire sale prices. And this is what's going on in Detroit. I don't know what will happen to the city, but, uh, but in my lifetime for certain, it will never be the Detroit it once was, and I don't think it ever will again for maybe generations. Well, how far do you think i mean wh where is all <clears throat> where's all of this headed uh, like how far can this go before things by necessity turn around i mean both for detroit and and for the united states itself well you know in the 80s it was youngstown michael and right now it's detroit <laughs> There are certainly more Detroits lurking out there, and I think this is the whole idea to take government services and hand them over to private corporations so they can rip off people for everything relating to their businesses, whether it's uh, whether it's uh, 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 almost any government service, uh, health care, uh, uh, water, uh, other vital services, hand it over to private business so they can profit from it. And it's always more expensive when you do it that way. There's the cry. The, the motto is that the business can do it better, so let it. But that's exactly untrue in so many instances where business just takes full advantage and, and gets uh, – I, I remember studying pricing theory back in business school. And, and pricing simply means getting whatever you're able to get. It's not a matter of covering your costs. 
is charging whatever you can get people to pay for your product or services. That's the fundamental law of pricing. So ripping off the public, if, they, if uh, these corporations can get away with it, is what they do. And that's exactly what they do, especially when governments sanction what they do. And certainly at the, at the head of the pecking order is anything that Wall Street does. But it goes right down the line on, on all vital services for goods and services and so on. So, I mean, now it's come down to the point where, where cities, municipalities can literally be stripped, taken away from governments, handed over to profiteers, and let them get whatever whatever they can out of them. And maybe in the end they would leave them hollow shells. But the people living there are the ones who suffer horrifically. And certainly people in Detroit have gone through that. But in my own city of Chicago, Michael, it's a vibrant city. But so many of the services have been handed over to private corporations, and they continue being handed over to them. And ordinary people in Chicago really having a very, very hard time, much, much worse than it was years ago, and it's only going to get worse ahead. And this is happening across America in big cities and small. Hmm. And you have uh, how you, you saw with the shutdown itself over the first half of October uh, impacting on uh, working people in the federal government system, and in, in a sense that whole same scenario of handing over assets effectively to private interests playing out there. Is there an example or a, uh, you know, a story that you can recall that will help illustrate just how much suffering has been uh, endured in the wake of that shutdown? I don't think the 16 days had much of any effect at all. A lot of the people who were unpaid for 16 days, Michael, will be paid. So they simply, anybody living from paycheck to paycheck, maybe had a squeeze by for 16 days, a little over two weeks. I think most anybody can get by for a period that short. Uh, they, most of them will be paid. Uh, I, th I think the great majority, they can simply pass a law, Congress can pass a law, and I think it basically has passed. Certainly the military is getting paid, and I think most other government workers will be paid. In one of the articles I wrote, I said it's up to the, it's up to the manager of a government operation to decide if, the, if uh, their people will be paid. And I think in most instances, they will be paid. So it will be a very small number of, of people who may end up with no pay. So I think things were more an inconvenience than, than causing any hardship to people who didn't have work for that period. Again, it's what's coming going forward that really is of great concern. Yeah. And everybody, every working person has uh, pays for Social Security and pays for Medicare. And they would be appalled if Obama and most Democrats and Republicans agreed to, I believe, first hand it over to Wall Street, privatize it, and let them get whatever they can out of it. And maybe in the end, if there's nothing more to get out of it, they would just dump them, and, and, and people will be entirely on their own. This is the most serious thing. But other major social protections are being dismantled as well. There's a debate in Congress going on now about cutting food stamps. Uh, Obama wants them cut. Uh, Democrats in the Senate want them cut. Republicans want greater cuts. So it's just a matter of agreeing how much will the cut be. And in one of my articles, I address that issue. But you go right down the line, Michael, basic protections that people need. Poor people in America who need help, social safety net, they're getting whacked. And they'll get whacked more going forward. And this is the great tragedy of what's going on, plus the fact that good jobs mostly don't exist anymore. Paul Craig Roberts has done the best work on this. He wrote at least one book addressing this topic directly, where, um, where industrial America has been offshored abroad to low-wage countries. And what's left 
uh, uh, part-time or temp, low-pay, poor or no-benefit jobs where households need more than one job to survive. There's more than one working person in the household. They probably both have to work. Uh, uh, welfare is no longer what it used to be, but that went out the window during the Clinton years. And even single working mothers, poor mothers with young children who need their mother around, well, sorry, you only get so-called welfare for a certain amount of time, and then you're on your own, tough for the kids. This is the state of America today. And it just keeps getting worse and worse, Michael. It's a, it's a terrible situation. It's not, the America I grew up in was certainly far from perfect, but it seemed like paradise compared to today. Well, uh, Stephen Lendman, I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it there, but I want to thank you very much for coming on the Global Research News Hour and helping to unpack the events of the last few weeks. I very much appreciate it. Michael, thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be on with you. Um, my guest has been Stephen Lendman, as a broadcast journalist, award-winning broadcast journalist, uh, author of How Wall Street Fleeces America, Privatized Banking, Government Collusion, and Class War, and he's also a frequent contributor, contributor to the Global Research website. His blog site is sjlendman.blogspot.ca. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcast out of Winnipeg on campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM and on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We are also podcast on the website, globalresearch.ca. David McNally is a professor of political science at York University. He's spoken and published widely on political economy, Marxism, and contemporary social justice movements. He joins us to discuss the U.S. debt crisis and put that crisis within the framework of larger political and economic trends. Professor McNally, welcome to the program. Thanks very much, Michael. It's nice to be with you. Uh, professor McNally, could you maybe help us... Uh, understand the, you know, how the United States got itself in the current predicament where they have such a, a huge debt built up and there seems to be this sort of ongoing um, uh, you know, you know, showdown uh, where they're, they're having to make deals to lift the debt ceiling and, uh, and make these tragic uh, cuts in order to help uh, pay for their, um, their, their predicament. How did it originate? Is it, since the working class is being made to pay for it, it appears, were they the ones responsible for it? Well, of course, that's the story that the Tea Party and other forces want to generate, Michael, the, the idea that there's public spending out of control and that that is the root cause of U.S. debt. Now, the problem with that story is that when you look closely, you realize that virtually every social assistance program in the United States, from food stamps to unemployment insurance, uh, support for public housing, and so on, uh, has been falling in terms of uh, per person social spending. The real overall root of the U.S. debt issue, and by the way, I don't think it's a crisis, it's just an ongoing debt issue for them, is twofold. First, the massive tax cuts, particularly to the rich, that 
have been coming in since the era of Ronald Reagan in the 1980s. And as a general rule, Democrats like Bill Clinton have continued the trend so that corporate taxes have been falling, but most dramatically taxes on the rich. And it's a basic rule of public finance that your revenues overwhelmingly come from taxation. And most of us will say we, we support progressive taxation. If you ask most people on the street, they will say, of course, the rich should pay a higher share than the poor. But in fact, that's exactly the principle that the U.S. tax system has been undermining. And so that's the number one cause. Alongside that, of course, is the enormous cost of the U.S. military machine, its imperial adventures in Afghanistan, in Iraq, and so on. Uh, it costs hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars. Those eventually tick over into the trillions. So that's the dual route, and in both cases, it's working-class people and the basic programs they need that are suffering. And as we'll talk about, even the resolution of this debt crisis imposes yet further burdens on poor people in the U.S. Hmm. Now, uh, I, I know... <clears throat> I know that you've spoken um, well in one of your previous books, uh, Global Slump. You you talked about how the uh, the the bailouts uh, the, that came in the wake of the um, the, uh, the the global meltdown of 2008 that uh, it was largely a, a systemic crisis uh, from the neoliberal stage of capitalism. So what what you were just mentioning there about mm -hmm. uh, tax cuts and uh, and whatnot. Uh, and we're also seeing um, the, the economy becoming more and more distanced from like actual activities related to employment and productive work and more and more linked to uh, the, the speculative nature of the market. Um, are, are there maybe certain uh, – looking back you know, over the last couple of decades, are, are there certain sort of uh, – points that you would flag as, as being uh, major contributors to the, the current situation. Absolutely. And, and let's start where you, your comment began, Michael, which is to say with the financial crisis of 2007 and 8, because one of the things that's very instructive there is that when banks were failing, trillions of dollars could be found overnight. At that point, nobody in the political establishment. Nobody in the corporate and economic elites in the United States wanted to play the cupboard is bare, we have no more to spend game. When it was banks going down and they feared for the very well-being of the international financial system, it did not matter what it cost. And so they pumped in trillions upon trillions upon trillions. Uh, as you know, I have estimated that the total cost of the global bank bailout is something a little bit under $30 trillion. And that's about twice the value of all the goods and services the U.S. produces in two years. Okay, But globally, beginning with the United States and then the European Union, China and Japan, they could come up with $30 trillion to bail out banks. So you're right that we have long-term trends, go back to the 1980s in terms of cutting the tax base, but then we've got the impact of the global financial crisis 
and the fact that the state basically said, we don't care what the bill is. We will bail you out. Of course, that's not what happens when workers lose their job. There isn't anybody saying, oh, we'll bail you out. That's not, happen. that's not what happens when people fall below the poverty line because they can only find 15 or 20 hours of work a week rather than 40. So it's a very important uh, illustration at the starting point. Now, on the broader trends of the economy, which was the second part of your question, I think really what's crucial here is the downward movement of the wage structure in the United States. And again, this goes back to the neoliberal policies that uh, were originally initiated in the 1980s, which was a concerted drive to break the strength of unions, to cut back social protections for workers, to force more and more people into low-wage jobs. And for a period of time, the, the term MIC jobs uh, was used to mimic McDonald's. Uh, and in that context, Michael, a really fascinating study, I mean, a really upsetting study, but very compelling one, came out earlier this week, which told us that 52% of all fast food workers in the United States are reliant on some sort of public aid to make ends meet. I mean, that's 52% of the people who are working at McDonald's, Burger King, and all kinds of other uh, fast food restaurants. And that includes the majority who have full-time hours. That's really important uh, to emphasize. Also, it's not true that these people are simply high school and university students. In fact, what they discovered was that the median age of these fast food workers is 28. So that's a huge part of the overall story that you're asking about in terms of what are the broader economic trends. There's bailout for, bailouts for banks, but there's more and more a low-wage economy, especially for young workers, women, workers of color in the United States, uh, that's leaving huge numbers in poverty. Now, what about uh, you know, talking about low-wage economy? Uh, have you tracked the uh, decline in union membership, its causes, and, and the impact that may be having? Oh, yeah. And again, the United States is one of the leaders of the PAC in, in this regard. If we go back to the beginning of the neoliberal era, there were about one in four U.S. workers worked a union job. Now, that still meant that three-quarters didn't have union protections, but one of the things about when you get to a high enough level is that one in four workers being in a union can mean that other employers try to stay close to the wage and benefit levels of the unionized workplaces so that they don't have to deal with a union drive and a union organizing campaign. Have to, they don't have to negotiate a union contract. Today, that level of unionization has fallen to just above 10% in the United States. That's a huge seismic shift in the way in which working people are protected or not by union contracts, uh, benefits, and so on. And it's reflective of this whole trend, uh, really, that we're describing towards precarious work, low-wage work. And by precarious, I simply mean almost no job security, a lot of it casual and part-time contracts uh, and, and the like. And of course, what that means is that a low-wage 
almost union-free, precarious work environment is great for employers and great for corporate profits. And so the irony we have in this overall situation today is that profits are booming while unemployment is high and more and more people are falling into poverty, which I think speaks to some of the fundamental shortcomings of this economic system. Hmm. Now, <clears throat> both the United States and Canada are uh, trying to sign on to free trade agreements uh, with the European Union, and of course there's the, uh, the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and uh, other sorts of trade pacts, or so-called trade pacts, uh, and they, they are being sold as a way of uh, boosting uh, the you know, economic uh, activity with, uh, you know, creating more businesses or helping more businesses thrive as markets open up abroad. Uh, do, do you see, um, how does that uh, trend track alongside uh, the, the developments you've mentioned about profits growing while uh, the you know, worker base is, seems to be shrinking or becoming uh, you know, compromised? Right. Well, of course, you know, this is a classic case where all of these deals have a small number of winners and a large number of losers. And by that, what I mean is that when you create a free trade deal, so-called, what is involved is that some corporations are going, and maybe banks, are going to get access to markets that they had a harder time getting into before. And so, for the sake of argument, perhaps a handful of Canadian mining corporations, global mining firms, are going to get greater access to some markets in Europe. But what drives these so-called trade deals is, in fact, integrating markets in such a way that the norm now becomes the market with the least labor protections, the lowest environmental regulation, the uh, worst conditions for union organizing. In other words, what they do is they facilitate a race to the bottom. Whoever is lowest in terms of wages, working conditions, union protections, environmental standards, that becomes the new normal, and everyone trends down towards it. And, of course, that has been the history. If you look at the so-called free trade or trade liberalization agreements that have been coming in since the late 1980s, that has been the overwhelming trend, a downward movement of wages, which is great for profits, uh, but does nothing to help in the area of either job creation or income creation. And so not surprisingly, the era of the trade agreements has seen a radical redistribution of wealth upwards. In other words, basically they've worked to transfer wealth from working people to the rich and, and the corporate sector. Hmm. We have the globalization of investment and markets, but uh, I don't see that... Uh worker, you know, unionization and, and worker solidarity has been able to keep pace with uh, that. You know, they, they tend to act more on, on local or national levels, but not so much on an international level. Is that your take on it? I think that that's a, an entirely valid observation. I, I think we have a, a working, a, a trade union movement today that is stuck in a model that's half a century or 
more old and is incapable of dealing with the trends of the modern capitalist economy. Uh, and by that, what I mean is that it's based on a model first where you simply organize the people in your own workplace. You create a contract that represents them and you bargain on their behalf. Well, sorry, but capitalism has moved in a different direction. It now has this much more transient, precarious, insecure workforce that we were talking about. Uh, fewer and fewer people have secure long-term employment where you can simply organize them in a workplace and negotiate on their behalf. Moreover, that model assumed that we were in the kind of era like the 1950s and 60s where capitalism globally was roaring, very, very high rates of growth. And so, yes, workers could get some crumbs from the table. As profits rose, wages rose a little bit too. That trend has been reversing now for 30 years. And what that means is that unions are going to have to reinvent themselves if they're going to be relevant to the new world of work. And that means that they're going to have to be much more adversarial in the way they stand up to employers. They're going to have to use mass mobilization campaigns, sit-down strikes, workplace occupations, street demonstrations, all the kinds of things that the industrial unions of the 1930s and 40s used. But beyond that, they're going to have to recognize that their constituency is all working people. It's not whoever works in your workplace, because that creates a kind of parochialism, a limited mentality, where you don't think about the interests of all the members of your class. How can we possibly try to preserve wage levels for, say, steel workers when we see the McJobs economy happening, particularly to younger workers, to women workers, to workers of color? Either we're going to have a movement that gets back to the principle, an injury to one is an injury to all, that great trade union principle, uh, or the, it will continue to go downwards. And the final element of that is what you were alluding to. This is going to have to require forms of cross-border solidarity, of transnational solidarity within the labor movement. I don't mean you pass a resolution at a union convention once a year. I mean concrete, tangible support to helping workers in the low-wage zones of the world organize themselves, win better labor protections, and so on. And there are handfuls of examples of that. There are some very good cross-border U.S.-Mexico labor organizing projects, which have had some modest success, for instance. So it can be done. But as you can see from what I'm saying, to use the term I used earlier, we're talking about reinventing the labor movement uh, if it's going to be relevant to the new world of work today. I think another aspect of this is the, the fact that so many people who are, are working class, uh, but they do draw benefits from those same bankers and, and their profits. You know, maybe they, they, people who have pension funds, people who, are, who have those sorts of investments, and they, they don't want to see their, their nest egg uh, necessarily decline as a result of, uh, you know, any kind of an organized... Um, uh, I don't know resistance. I mean, it, it just—I'm I'm just thinking that would probably be an obstacle, if uh, you know, like, and it, or at least what, uh, what what some of the uh, the, uh, the the 
<clears throat> the criticism of any kind of a, 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 the efforts that we're seeing to bail out the banks is that, uh, I mean, people may be angry about how the banks are, are behaving, but at the same time, they're kind of tied up in the welfare of the banks, if, if you know what I'm getting at here. Well, and I think what you're speaking to here is what I would call the contradiction between perceived short-term interests and real long-term interests. And what I mean by that, Michael, is this, is that in abstraction, if you simply say to me, do you prefer that the f companies in which your pension funds are invested stay healthy so that your pension is there when you retire? Of course I'm going to say yes. It does, that's just kind of, it, it, it comes almost without thought to say, well, of course, I want my pension to be there when I need it in old age. But that's what I'm calling a perceived short-term interest because if I then get a much more meaningful question, do I want that even if it means that those corporations will continue the trend towards an economy in which my own children will never know secure, decent paid employment with benefits that they will never have the kind of pensions that a unionized worker today can get, that the drive downwards into the low-wage economy is part of the price I have to pay for that, that environmental deterioration is part of that whole story, that the upward transfer of wealth away from the poor is a necessity of all of that. When, I, when, when put in those terms, I think an awful lot of workers are going to go, well, no, of course I don't want this for my children, my grandchildren, and so on. My having a decent pension isn't worth that. But of course, the way in which the whole uh, structure of political discourse and ideology has been developed in our society, we're not having those conversations. So that people get trapped in what I'm calling these perceived short-term interests, where the large structural changes and transformations in our society that, that we're discussing here today uh, don't become part of the picture. And I think it's going to be one of the great challenges for the new radical movements, the new working class movements of the next generation. That it poses the questions in the terms in which we're talking about them now. I think once you do that, then you force working class people to think beyond the narrow short-term perceptions and to think about the long-run trajectory of society and what they find acceptable and what they don't. And if they find it unacceptable, that trajectory, then what? they need to do politically about that. But as I say, that's a conversation we're not having, but it's the one that the next left and a revitalized working class movement will have to have. It seems to me, though, that the Occupy movement was addressing most of those points, and uh, they don't seem to have, it doesn't seem to have sustained itself very well. Do you, what are some of the, or what are your thoughts about Occupy and, and what it could have done differently or, or could still do. Yeah, and I think you're right to identify Occupy in that way. It was the key movement in the North American context, at least, that had identified 
this question that we're talking about now, the fundamental reorganization of our society, the uh, dramatic shifts in wealth and power towards the 1%. And it had named the problem. And it had named the problem in a way that resonated with public consciousness. I mean, the degree of popular support for the basic objectives of Occupy in both Canada and the United States was stunning when we saw the public opinion polls. I mean, you know, you get it. You, you were getting uh, anywhere from 55 to 70 percent of people saying, yes, I agree with Occupy's uh, basic goals. Uh, I think the problem, however, and as somebody who is very much a supporter of the Occupy movement here in Toronto and some other cities, I think the problem that we all have to address is that as electrifying as a movement is that, for instance, takes over a public park, as it did in New York or as it did here in Toronto, it needs a long-term strategic vision that allows it to go from being focused on one single geographic site, like a park, to becoming a movement implanted in communities, neighborhoods, workplaces, and schools. In other words, rather than having a single focal point, it needs to become a movement with real roots in thousands and thousands of working class communities and workplaces. And that requires really, I think, trying to learn from the whole history of movements and also, of course, from some of the most important movements that do exist today, some of the landless workers' movements in parts of uh, Latin America, for instance, and the way in which they've had long-term movement-building visions so that we don't ourselves become enamored by simply getting a lot of media coverage and thinking that the fact that we're doing well in a public opinion poll is the same thing as sinking the deep roots in poorer and working class communities that are going to allow us to build a movement over the course of a decade or a generation that can change the world. And I think that's where we're going to need to do a lot of work. In many respects, the social movements today have lost any space for developing that kind of strategic vision. And without that, however, I think the transition from the upsurges of support that Occupy could clearly gather into the long-term movement building with deep social roots can't happen. The inspiring thing about Occupy, though, is I think it showed us that contrary to the mainstream story, there are huge numbers of people out there who are deeply disgruntled about what's happening in our society and would quickly rally to anything that looked like something new and creative that was going to challenge that. And so now for us, that next challenge is to figure out how to make it a much more viable, long-term strategic organizing project. David McNally, in light of everything we've been discussing so far, would a default, like had the, the deal not been struck, would a default really have been a bad thing in the grand scheme of things? Well, let's put it this way, Michael. 
if the U.S. government had defaulted on its debt payments, it would have sent another wave of trauma through global financial markets. And that does have, you know, ill effects for workers if it means that some businesses start to close up, some systems of trade shut down, and so on. Now, that wouldn't happen with, you know, one day of defaulting. But the longer it went on with the U.S. government not paying its debts to banks and corporate bondholders and other governments around the world, there's no question it would have sent shockwaves through global financial markets. Unfortunately, that when I say that, a lot of people assume that the only alternative then is to keep the current financial system in place. That's not at all what I'm saying. Let's go back for a moment to what I talked about earlier when governments bailed out the banks to the tune of about $29 trillion in 2008, 9, and 10. Well, the obvious thing to say at that point in time was if the public has bailed these banks out, then we should, they should come under public ownership. That was the obvious thing to say. We are now the owners of those banks. In other words, you begin to bring the financial institutions out of private hands and into public hands. You begin to say that no longer are these simply private for-profit institutions. They now ought to be public institutions that pursue public good, like development of social housing and investing in it development of uh, genuine green jobs, and so on. And so, yeah, uh, for the U.S. to have defaulted on its debt would, in fact, have produced shockwaves through global financial markets, and there would definitely be what they call collateral damage. Some poor and working class people would be hurt by that. But rather than saying we have no option then but to go along with the system, seems to me that it points in exactly the opposite direction, that we should be talking about ways of taking that financial system into public hands and putting it under democratic public control, which is, of course, a way of saying that we have to think about getting ourselves to a system where these kinds of financial crises don't haunt us all the time. Well, Professor McNally, uh, really enjoyed the, this conversation. Uh, I think we'll have to leave it there for now, but uh, uh, I want to thank you very much for that analysis and helping to uh, disentangle a lot of the uh, rhetoric we've heard around this whole uh, debt crisis situation. Thank oh, you for joining us. As always, Michael. I've been speaking with David McNally, professor of political science at York University and uh, the author of several books uh, relating to the political economy, Marxism, and contemporary social justice. <laughs> You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can hear our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across the country. We are broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I am series host and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.